0: Welcome to Baker's Wife. We are sponsored by our very own concert series. January 24th, Avi Gans is back at our bakery for a live show. He is fabulous. You can get your tickets by going to eventbuzz.co.il and uh, searching for Avi Gans. Or head to our Facebook page. We have links to the concert there. Uh, Looking forward to seeing everyone and enjoy the show. Okay, hi everybody, welcome to our fifth episode of the podcast. We are so excited to be here. I am crazy excited to be here because the minute I knew I was doing the podcast, you are really gonna be my first guest. Don't tell Dave. Um, I'm just so happy to introduce <laughs> David's bread guru. Really, the person I call a Navi, Maybe a little Obi Wan Kenobi in you. A little Yoda. <laughs> I wish that I meaning even an overall even to just describe like what you look like right now. It sort of feels like you were on like some mountain trek where you were discovering some truth, and your beard got like long and white. You're, you're feeling very um, wise these days. But,
1: but, but that's your fault. You <laughs> created this image, and I just tried to fill it.
0: Listen, I feel very excited that I have created, I have branded you in a way that you are now walking around looking. I think that you could star in, like, Lord of the Rings, like in any of those. <laughs>
1: Maybe finally I made money from something.
0: That's right. <laughs> um, and Omorrell has been part of our bakery story from really the very, very beginning, beginning piece. Um, I know Morel is um, David's guru in bread, and I would say it took me a while to get along for the go-along with this ride. You know that, right? (laughs) Um, But even from the start, it felt like he was in very good hands. Do you remember the first time he reached out to you?
1: Yeah, I do. It was, um, look, people reach out to me occasionally, and I've learned with the years to be a little bit, I wouldn't say suspicious, but leery. Okay. You know? um, partially because people sometimes don't know what they want or they don't and so this guy calls me up and says, Hello, I'm David Katz and uh to Ladat al Khametz. True facts. Uh vin maze Well that was meaning yeah. that was
0: the time period in his life that he was baking matzah and he felt like, Oh, let's you know, I've got that down pat, let me try the next thing.
1: So I, I, I went along and I said, okay, you know, what do we want to do? And um, we ended up, I think, just traveling together and doing a, a date. I, was it, did I, I have a meeting before? <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't yes. I remember. Yes, I
0: think you must have had a meeting before. And I also yeah. traveled with you guys at some point to get a sense of what it was yeah, about. Yeah, and,
1: and we went to all kinds of places.
0: Interested in it And he came back with, he had ordered all of this equipment to build the oven. And that's when I remember you sort of joining our lives because you helped build that oven in our yeah. backyard.
1: Yeah, well, that there, I mean, ties into it, that whole Alan Scott story, which is, uh, to make a very long story short, uh, Alan Scott was this guy, this Australian-born, Tasmanian-born uh, guy who lived in the United States. And he he was, I think he was a blacksmith by trade and an engineer. And he did this whole crazy research into these old, old ovens and he came up with this brilliant oven. I mean, brilliant. Really top-notch. He notch,
0: patented the oven, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, top-notch, best in the world. And when I wanted to build my oven, I researched. And I came up with this guy. And I realized, I, I found out that you can buy uh, plants from him. And then I contacted him. And the response that I got was, um, I... Not gonna help any Israelis until Israel uh, retreats from the occupied territories, and uh, and rejoins the nation, the League of Nations. I think Na-
0: that I, I think that I think he's passed away.
1: Yeah, he's passed away.
0: And so yes, yeah, so he doesn't know. Meaning David did, in fact, buy the plans, I, and we built it in the occupied territories. Actually, every
1: oven that was built after me was built in the territories that I know. Anyway, somehow I convinced them. Till this day I'm not sure exactly how. how. Um, so when but because I was the first one to build one. Where
0: was your oven built? In Clil. Where's that?
1: On uh, Western Galilee, somewhere like I'd say about 15 minute drive east from the area.
0: That's where you were living at the time or you yeah. you had a store there?
1: No, well, um, or, or, Originally, um, my wife, she wasn't born there because she's a little bit older than the place itself. But her family was, her mother was one of the first, I to three families. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like a non, it's a hippie community, no electricity, or at least no uh, power. I mean, they have uh, solar power. And when we, when I wanted to open the bakery, she wanted to live there. So I kind of had to find a way to bake. there. Like there. Like, like that. And so I, I didn't really have a choice. So, one of the things that I did was I, I was trying to figure out how to create the best oven for that, a essentially a wood fired brick oven. Uh, and that's what I came up with. There was nobody to talk to about that. <laughs> well, I mean, nobody. for
0: me, look, when David had started this idea of learning how to make bread, for me it seemed like, oh, I'd get a trip out of it. Oh, we'd go to Paris. Oh, we'd go to San Francisco. And then when you showed up on the scene, it felt like, okay, I'm going to trade in the travel benefits that I was going to get, but I was going to trade it in for meeting probably one of the most iconic people that I have met. And I think to this day, like we just somebody just needs to say your name and i'm like instantaneously transported into like one of a million stories that i have collected about you even the fact that we're talking in english is hilarious because you're not anglo no totally no. israeli
1: not even close <laughs> i mean my my father used to used to say we're mongrels you know we were mates for so from so many different breeds um my family is gypsy um Kavkaz uh, Austrian royalty. Nice. You know? Um, let's see what else is there. Uh, German. You know they statistics.
0: have DNA tests now that yeah, you can I swab. do swab. You should yeah, do that. I, I that would be amazing. Yeah. Um yeah, so you are meaning but but Anglo is no is nowhere no, 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 on no, your no, plate. No. So how do you speak English?
1: No idea, to be honest.
0: So I think, meaning, I have elaborate theories, meaning you are certainly an autodidact. You're self-taught, I would say, with everything, not only in the world of languages, but I would say also, meaning, you play the oud? No. What do you play?
1: I I play a little bit of oud, but that's not my instrument. My instrument is saz. Saz. Yeah, (laughs) S-A-Z.
0: Is that an instrument that the average person would know? Does it look like an oud? Like, why in my head?
1: Well... Let me let me talk about this differently. Whenever we play as a band, somebody would come and ask if I if, if uh, we if I'm playing the mandolin. Really? Okay, fine. Okay, uh, after a while I realized that nobody knows what a mandolin is. Okay. Okay? So people have some sort of non-guitar instrument that they attach to, and that becomes kind of the basic concept of every non-guitar that somebody plays. <laughs> So, uh, an oud is a great instrument, and I used to play for a little bit. It's mostly Arab and uh, Arab, Persian, Turkey. Iraqi. Yeah. Uh, Turkey also, but, um, but has, and actually was the father of the guitar. The saz is an um, eastern, north, north uh, um, long neck lute, basically. Okay. Uh, that fathered no instrument in the west. There's not, There's no. There's equivalent.
0: no. There's nothing comparable, no. which is probably why in my head it's just yeah, an Yeah,
1: it, and and and, and oud became familiar. Some people compared it to, but it actually has no connection to it, no tradition connection to it. Two different species of people used to play it. Now people always think about it as some esoteric instrument, but you know what? In Turkey, it's as common as a guitar is in Spain.
0: But that was also taught in the past decade. You have how long have you been playing for?
1: I first touched on it. Um, about 20 years ago. But um, I re-entered it um, way later.
0: In my head, it was connected to you getting sick and you relearning to use your... Yeah, it computer. is. It
1: is connected. What, what happened was this. Um, I came across this instrument a, a, a really long time ago. I just saw somebody playing, and I, I fell in love with it. And I was looking for a way to study it, and I eventually found... Studied with two teachers in Israel, one in Turkey, but, uh, but it, it was marginally a hobby, nothing more. Okay. Uh, what you remember, which is correct, is after I got sick, after I got colon cancer, I went through the whole shebang. I mean, I had um, uh, radiation therapy and chemo before an operation. I had a full-scale operation. I had uh, adjuvantic chemo after. We're talking about a year. Basically. Um, now, I came out of it uh, with a couple, of, I mean, generally speaking, I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, when I was diagnosed, they gave me 10%. Wow.
0: Also, when you were diagnosed, it was right before you were planning on opening your own bakery. Yeah,
1: we were a week before signing a loan for a million shekels to open a bakery. That's unbelievable. It's yeah. Um, I mean, We already had a bakery, but expanding that one, we wanted to move it and make it into a really big bakery, and it was just a week before. Um, Anyway, when I came out from the cancer, and I came out okay, relatively, okay, for what I went through, one of the things I came out with was complete uh, neuropathy, which essentially meant I had no feeling in my limbs, no my my legs or my arms, completely, you could prick me with a pin, it wouldn't work. now there was no, this was not because of the cancer, this was because of the chemo. I talked to a neurologist in Switzerland uh, and he said, um, look, nobody knows if this will ever come back. We don't have an answer. I have come across one study that said that if people had prior, some prior training in music and they return to it, there might be some relief. And I said, okay. Somehow, I managed to convince Bituach Lumi, till this day, I don't know how that wow. happened. I managed to convince Bituach Lumi that teaching Middle Eastern music is a viable profession, and they should pay for my professional transfer from it like, uh, I, It's Viga. like no the socialist I- country. Yeah, no idea wow. how that worked, but that's what happened. And I, I, yeah, I went to study for three years.
0: And that was where your full focus was? Yeah. Meaning, I have this very clear image of um, right when we were opening our first bakery and it was under renovation, and I was driving out there one afternoon, to Roche Surim, and I pull up and you're sitting cross-legged. Oh, with that
1: guy. Yeah. On the
0: like on the porch of the bakery playing what I thought was an oud, but really is a saz. With a French documentary crew, videoing you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> there's, only, there's only so much crazy I can take. I literally didn't even get out of the car. I'm like, I'm home. Turn the car around and go back.
1: Now that you mention it, I, mean, you know, I, I get like an outside look at it. I can see how that can <laughs> happen. But yeah, what, what happened was this guy who was a documentary filmmaker from uh, France. Uh, who, he was doing a film about this instrument across the world. He started with this German woman who was playing it. And he somehow found me, and he came, and he videoed – he in, did that, that interview, and he also – which, by the way, never went anywhere.
0: Like, I, I feel like the, the essence of who you are is that they're all of these stories pocketed somewhere, meaning it, it'll feel like I'm trying to reach you, and you'll be like, oh, I'm in Turkey at the souk in Turkey playing at some kind of festival or something. Like, it always feels like there's something so unconventional.
1: Um, Pretty much true. (laughs) Uh, At some point, people who really know me, um, there's a place where they often... It's a moment, and I've learned to recognize that moment. After a certain amount of spending time with me and after a certain amount of stories that they hear, they stop for a second, they look at me and go like, how are you... It's true. It's like how much, how much have you lived now I can't really explain it. I mean I, I, I didn't go to the Army. so I had three years more. Than you most. didn't go to no, the army? No. How come? Um, it's kind of a crazy well like most of my stories, it's one of those uh, unclear exactly how that happened. I was arrested when I was 17 and a half um, for smoking a joint on the beach. They never found the joint, but I spent ten days beaten up on a regular basis. On. Yeah, for sure.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Um, and I, I was arrested, and then, but nothing came out of it. I thought, as far as I knew, that was the end of it because they had no proof. And actually, you know, all they, all I did was smoke something. It, I didn't. I wasn't dealing. It wasn't anything. There was a whole shebang about it, but other than that, it was. I mean, I came out PTSD.
0: For sure, uh, meaning
1: I mean, I, for sure. Yeah, I used to lose my consciousness every, every, uh, every time I saw a police car. I, I would literally That's faint. That's
0: severe PTSD. Yeah, I,
1: I would literally faint. Wow. Um,
0: and from that, they wouldn't accept you into the army? Well,
1: he, what happened was, I thought that was the end of it. Because as far as I knew, they didn't they, they, they really had nothing, and there was nothing to be had. So they just released it and closed it out. Well, fast forward about, I don't know, eight months um, I was en route to being uh, to uh, being a pilot in the army, which is what I wanted to do since I was six. So one day I get a um, um, letter in the mail saying uh, um, inviting me to do um, a caban, you know, just to, um, I a a psych-, a psych bomb. Oh yeah. Okay. I couldn't figure out why. I went there, and the uh, the psychologist sits before me, and he says, do "You know why you're here?" I said, "I have no idea." He says we are here because um, uh, you're a drug dealer. I says, <laughs> "What?" And he says, wow. "Yeah, usually we don't." Yeah, better. Said, usually we don't even invite people like you, but because you are actually in route to becoming a pilot, and every test you ever took in the army was either the maximum result possible or close to it, we couldn't figure it out. So we wanted to see who, who you are. I said, "Look, I have no idea what you're talking about." I'm going to stop this one, this now, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to make a couple of phone calls to find out what happened. Well, what turns out happened was somebody who was somehow connected to me and got arrested just rolled my name out of nowhere. Wow. And they opened, without me present, without me knowing anything about it, they opened uh, a police file for a drug dealer.
0: That still follows you to this day?
1: No. About two days later, it was already closed down because my, my, I had my father call all kinds of people and uh, it was because he was completely bogus. But from that point on, I had, had a problem with the army. The army didn't want me to enlist, but they wanted me to have a 45 profile with a drug abuse uh, uh, uh sub-clause.
0: So I can understand where your connection net to authority might have broken.
1: Yeah, I, I was like, well, never had much of it. I was going yeah. <laughs> to
0: in my mind, there was never any, but that certainly is a story that would explain yeah. why. I mean, it,
1: my connection with authority is actually, strangely, it, it's strangely enough, not really a problem. I'm a, I'm, I've always been able to take on or accept authority when I needed to. Uh, but that was not the case. I was willing to go to the army. I was just not willing to do uh, secretarial work for three years while, being, while having a chaperone for 24 hours, which is what I was, I was wow. facing. So I tried everything I could and eventually I couldn't get out. I, I, I couldn't get in. I couldn't re uh, reestablish my original profile. So I went the other way and, and spent a year trying to get out. Eventually succeeded.
0: From that time, did you know what was next? Like, did you go no. to baking right no, 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 then? No, 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 no.
1: What, what did I do afterwards? Um, I, it's
0: hard to remember because of all the pot.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I became a horse trainer.
0: A horse trainer? Yeah. Really?
1: Somebody. Okay. <laughs> now, he, this is really one of the one of the dumbest stories of my life. I had a friend who was who, who uh, was with horses for, you know, ever since he was a kid, and I was at the my father's kibbutz at the time, and I was looking for a way out of it, and um, he said, "There's an opening in a horse farm, uh, to to manage the farm, to manage the horse the, the horse ranch." I said, "Okay, that's great, but I've never ridden a horse in my life." He said, "No problem, I'll train you." So what, what ended up happening is he kind of sold me to the owner, I have no idea how, he took me there, we did one ride, and a week later I was running the ranch. <laughs> now, fortunately, I was a natural. I, with horses. With horses. I was a natural. I, the minute I went up on a horse for the first time, the minute I rode a horse, it was as if I did it my whole life. So I had no problem passing <laughs> as somebody who was actually really trained, which I guess is what he told the guy. But, yeah, so I started host training, and then I did – I I bartended. I ended up managing uh, a big hotel's uh, bar system. And then I found myself in the kitchen because they needed a bartender, but really what they needed was a cook. So I came in as a bartender and became a cook. And then from that, it kind of rolled into baking.
0: We always talk about it because, like, like maybe it's, like, the, like, North American in me that there's usually this, like – you get on a pathway and you just go to that pathway. You're gonna be an accountant, you're gonna be a lawyer, you're gonna be a physical therapist. I think maybe in some ways, it's a little bit less likely like that in Israel, yeah, but that sure. path is, seems so, I, well, first of all, crazy, obviously crazy, um, it but it's amazing that the, that bread didn't start you off, meaning that you found it, it later it, on. It's not,
1: it's not just that it didn't start me off, it wasn't particularly interesting for me.
0: So when did that switch happen?
1: Um, I began baking because I sous-chefed for uh, a guy in a restaurant up north. And uh, part of the job was was baking. So I just learned it there. For, For no reason other than to do it. I didn't particularly like it. It was okay.
0: Also, bread isn't something that you, ju- uh, certainly sourdough bread, isn't something that you just sort of pick up. Like, there's science behind it, Yeah, no, so at the
1: time it wasn't anything. It, we, he was studying it in, on, on his own, the chef, and he he loved it, and he was, and I was just, you know, because I was suing for him, and you know, suing being his second, um, I just, you know, I just worked with him, and that's what I did, and I continued to kind of do it for my own pleasure. I didn't do it very well, uh, I didn't see... I didn't feel like I had any particular talent in it or anything else. But then I was never focused on talent anyway. I was focused on my capacity to learn and to work hard. It,
0: that's meaning you're talking about something that out of psychology textbook, it's only about that, right? Talent takes always takes a second seat to grit, like to yeah. focusing in and so, to just...
1: I don't care about talent, basically.
0: You've said that meaning often, like... You know, So you're sitting here with me now, but really you spent the day at the bakery, and it's one of our favorite days. It instills fear in David and in all of my staff, because you walk in and you're like, this isn't going well, this is going okay, this needs to be changed. Because you sort of have this clarity of vision of what needs to get done. But very often you'll call me out on either staff members that we have, and you'll be like, meaning there's all talent, but there's tons of attitude, and there's no connection to like really getting yourself into it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Anyway, it just it's, bread just beca- it was a kind of a back burner um, for no real reason. And then um, it became a focal point uh, when I started keeping kosher. And my kitchen, the kitchen that I actually knew was all non- kosher. We're talking seafood, pork, you know milk and it just couldn't do it. And I was literally looking for something technical that I could do and make money out of, and make, and make a living out of.
0: Because at that point, you started to become more observant? Was that a yeah. change point then?
1: Yeah. And I, I, I already was for about two and a half or three years. And I just was looking for something that I could make a living out of. Uh, and bread seemed like a logical choice. For no... Not, not for any good reason. So I didn't do it out of passion or anything else. It was just... Something that seemed like I could be, do well or okay and, and provide for my family.
0: But it's not an easy thing. Like when you say no. it, it's sort of like you're saying it dismissively. Like, oh, so it's, you know that's what I'll do. But really, bread, first of all, I think after all these years, tell me if I'm right or wrong, there's a very specific personality that works well with bread.
1: Um, ye, well, there are c- a couple, but there's a couple of very clear ones.
0: I think that the qualities that you need to have, sorry, our phone's ringing. I think the qualities you need to have are humility. I think that there's like an authenticity and there's an appreciation for like a bigger world.
1: Uh, I would say that that's true. And bakers, I found that I I usually categorize bakers as uh, uh, professors or loners. You know, Uh, bakers either want to know everything about what they do, bakers are almost always the scientists of the culinary world. Uh, because bread baking, to an extent, is a, um, an applicable um, biochemistry. That's, that's what it is, in a way. true. Sure. Um, so if you, if you understand it from that standpoint, then you, you will spend your life learning. And I mean really learning. You, you will learn biology as deeply as you can, chemistry as deeply as you can, physics as deeply as you can, all in order to do bread.
0: I call it a little bit of a rabbit hole that David has gone down, meaning there's so many things beyond what I ever would have expected that go into learning about bread, and I also think it's a lifelong learning track. It is,
1: it's an, it's a, which is, for me, probably the most appealing point. It's endless. I mean, one of my favorite moments is uh, a student, I think I told you this one, uh, a student in uh, the, the academy that I teach for um, kind of you know, yelled at me from the end of the class, this is uh, a chef. How many years does it take to become a baker? And looked said, "Okay, uh, what the what level do you want to reach here?" He says, "Well, the top." I said, "Well, I'll tell you when I get there."
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: no idea. Um, but out of all these, what I'd call technical or pragmatic uh, considerations, I found myself baking bread in a very specific way, all for pragmatic reasons. Uh, people often thought, and you know, I had all kinds of. Uh, Reporters interviewing me and i kinds. Of, people often thought that I did this whole clear cool thing with the uh, wood fired oven you know all handmade from some sort of ideal no this is where my wife wanted to live <laughs> there was no electricity I was being completely pragmatic I was following Abraham listen to your wife nice you know uh, and I was trying to do the best that I could with that that's why I did it there was no other reason now What did happen is because I did it in that way, I learned things that bakers usually don't. And um, because I am who I am, I kept on studying.
0: Was there a point where you fell in love with it?
1: About two or three years ago. That's it? Yeah.
0: Why is that? That's crazy that that's it.
1: Yeah, out Out of 20 years. When I, for instance, when I became sick and I went to uh, do music, I never thought i come coming back to bread. As far as I was concerned, I didn't even miss it. I didn't care. If I never touched at that point, if you would have asked me about bread, if I said if I'd never touched a loaf in my life again, that would have been okay.
0: So what changed? Practical again? Like oh, now I need to make a living. I'm going to go back to it.
1: That's why I went back to it for sure. But what? Why I fell in love with it again? What for real? Um, I don't know i don't honestly know and again even now i would not say okay here's what's confusing about my attitude for sometimes sometimes um, when i talk and when i relate to bread people feel a lot of passion behind it a yeah. lot of you know like deeply engaged but that's not about bread i've learned in a very 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 early age to do that with whatever i did
0: That's funny because, like, when people come to, like, the workshops that David runs, like, or even my staff here will be like, we've never heard someone get that excited about bread. So, like, David does have the passion about bread, but he also enjoys teaching. Like, I think that there's this joint, um, like, this overlap of what he loves, which is teaching, and what he loves, which is, like, explaining sourdoughs and the health properties that it put him in, like, the perfect place. But what you're saying is something different. You're saying that you came to love it over time.
1: What I'm saying is I'm my passion is formless. And I've learned to uh, put it in whatever form I need to. So I had the same passion for music and the same passion for bread. And Which the same continues passion, now. Yeah, and the same passion for cooking. And the same passion for uh, horseback riding and the same passion for bartending and uh, a couple of other professions that I won't mention, and for every person that I've ever loved in my life. Because I learned how to do that. I learned how to not tie, you know, lo yabedavav and ahavashatlu Yeah. I do not tie it to a form.
0: So you're unusual. Meaning, I don't think that that's... You think? (laughs) No, but that's an amazing thing to be able to step back and say, oh, I bring passion to everything that I do.
1: It, it, for me, it was the only way. It, it, it made sense. Look, I'm dyslexic, dysgraphic, and ADHD. So my learning techniques have always been different, uh, which means I had to find ways around. Yeah. Okay? One of the reasons that this developed for me, it was because it was the only way for me to learn. The only way for me to focus myself in a particular way is to be passionate about it. And since I needed to learn different things at different times, I learned how to put passion in anything. It was essentially a survival mechanism.
0: Look, now, and I don't want to embarrass you because you are one of the most humble people that I know, but now you're widely regarded as the top bread baker in Israel, meaning your name has opened so many doors for us just in terms of, oh, you know, we're looking to expand our pastry line. You're like, call this guy. You know, we're looking to find a good supplier for flour. Call this guy. And anytime I say, oh, I know Morel, you know, recommended recommended iPhone, they're like, oh, no problem. You know, the door is open. So at a certain point, I don't think it's only Israel-renowned, like, You know, you're world-renowned at this point.
1: Probably true, to an extent, but probably true. Um, This was, this is the worst aspect of my work.
0: The public persona? It's fascinating that you say that. Because I, who am very public and very extroverted, since opening the bakery, I've struggled with, like, being front and center all the time, which you would assume would be so natural and comfortable for me, but I've also had that struggle. No,
1: I, I, I did this consciously. I chose this. I am very methodical about this. Um, and since I am complex and my life is complex, I, um, there are only certain aspects that are available.
0: Meaning, I totally, I, I totally hear your points and I feel it, and I feel that tension constantly. Meaning, it's a good tension to have, also. I feel like y- you want to have a little bit of level of discomfort, because I feel like it keeps you a little bit humble. Um, but also, you know, you want to be out there. You want to, you know, certainly for you, like, to be an influencer in this world of bread.
1: Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a strange choice, because it happened for two reasons. One of them was, again, about... about simple choice about providing for my family. You know, there's a certain level of income that you can get that comes with a certain level of recognition.
0: I mean, we could talk for... I mean, this will be another podcast, totally, but we can talk about how challenging it is to open a bakery in Israel, to run a small bakery, mm -hmm. or probably any small business in Israel. So maybe it wasn't our best choice, but... um...
1: It it almost never is. (laughs) But, but, uh... uh, So that was a part of it. But another part of it had to do with... um, which is what my wife sometimes lovingly called my middle age crisis. Sure, that's you know? what I
0: call this bakery.
1: So I didn't uh, buy a, you know, a sports car and I didn't find a younger woman or any, any, anything to assuage my ego. But I did look at the world of baking, specifically Israeli baking, and I didn't like what I was seeing. So I said, I'm going to change this. And one of the things that I realized really early uh, is that if I need to change, if I want to change this, I have to become a recognizable persona. Otherwise, I don't, I, I'm not going to be able to do much.
0: So why are you walking into the world of, like, David Katz, who's a great guy and truly I do love him, but this would should be small potatoes for you.
1: Because it's both. The, the changes like these happen from two from two different levels. One is educational, Okay. Uh, and educational is both is, is both a broad spectrum education, yeah, but it's also a grassroots education. So every baker, like David Katz or numerous others that I've guided or helped open bakeries, um, are in themselves ambassadors. They're in them in themselves. They're educators. They're changing the public opinion of what bread is, of what it could be. Of, what, of how to consume it. They, they are speaking truths where other people are speaking falsehoods, okay? I can give you one example, for instance, one of my most beloved examples. Um the Israeli Ministry of Health, has been stressing the use of whole grains, okay? Absolutely no stress or process, just the ingredient. Okay. Okay? Now, whole grain, without the proper process, is two things. First of all, It's not particularly nutritious because the nutrition is not available for you in any way. And, to an extent, it's a little bit toxic.
0: Why toxic?
1: Because it has a a substance that's called... um, It's it's a sort of acid that essentially is a mineral blocker called phytic acid. And it ties into minerals and vitamins and doesn't let you absorb them. That kind of acid only breaks down with long fermentation over time in certain temperatures. If you... Just done, you know, a, a factory-made, uh, hundred and fifty minutes from uh, bread and water to a uh, baked and, and um, packaged product, bread with whole wheat. It hasn't broken down. It's completely there, and it is a little bit like um, mercury. It doesn't leave your body. It accumulates.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay.
1: So it's process of produce in bread. Okay. It's like I, I often when I teach I often give that people this example. I said I. When I'm thinking about kids, I'm way more interested in how they were brought up than what their genetics are.
0: That's also why you don't care about talent. You care about exactly. how much you... Yeah, it's, what it, the evidence is. me, between
1: nature and nurture, it's definitely nurture. Okay? So, people like David and, and others, either whether they, whether they open bakeries or they teach themselves or they just bake good breads, but they know the truth of things, as. You know, as much as they were exposed to it, they're ambassadors. They're changing the way people think about these things.
0: That's for sure true. Meaning I've watched David in workshops get very excited about talking about just the process of what a sourdough process is, what different types of grains are. He definitely is putting it out there in a way that the preconceived notions are being broken down. Yeah.
1: So when you do that, and you do that enough, and enough people are doing it, you're going to change your society.
0: Yeah, look, we, I always say this, we accidentally were trendy when we opened this bakery, right? David is certainly not a trendy guy, I'm not trendy, and accidentally we sort of fell into this world of sourdough breads as the trend up was like, first of all, encouraging people to educate themselves and encouraging people to have a more mindful and healthful life. So all of a sudden, being the first bakery is on Kibbutz Rosh which is this tiny kibbutz, but it happens to have like a generation of people living there who are really mindful about what they mm. put in their bodies. So it feels like we hit it at the right time, you hit it at the right time, and then it sort of all started like moving forward from yeah, that.
1: It's exactly that. And it, when all of these pieces work, then it, then it actually, because bread is so essential to human existence, and because it ties into agriculture, and actually ties into politics,
0: Look, it ties into Jewish history, exactly. meaning it's everywhere. Well,
1: Jewish and Palestinian history for that matter. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's absolutely yeah. true. Okay?
1: So it ties into so many things that if you actually manage to change people's perception of this and if you manage... So you're doing all, 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 all sorts of things that eventually influence. You're giving people better food. Uh, you're educating to what better food is and why it's better food. You're connecting them, connecting them to real people who are making this food. You're talking about politics. You're talking about agriculture and changing agricultural culture. And you know, history. And history. And it, it's, the whole thing just works on so many levels that that was, that was my realization. That was the thing that I looked at and I said, OK, all of this works together. It's, you know I'm looking at the bread. I'm looking at one living organism. So the baking world, in a way, is also one living organism. And if I look at it and I can make this organism healthier, that's why I stepped up. That's why I decided that I'm going to be visible. I could have stayed back. I was a well-known secret for the the professionals. Everybody knew. In the professional world, a lot of people knew who I was. But I decided to become more public because I wanted to create something that is more of a, a social change than just making good bread.
0: Look, for us also as people who moved to Israel like, there's this society that we don't get into, you know, this yeah. secret society of like, you know, of bread bakers, or more than that, like people who I think, in, in an, almost in an insecure way, we believe have like more more of a right to join the culture of what it means to live in Israel or be Israeli. And I think through you, and definitely through the bakery, David and I have found this, like, entryway into this, like, vibrant Israeli society that so far exceeded anything that we ever expected that we would find. So for us, that's been amazing.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, at some point, either a baker realizes that a baker, a, a baker of an area, even if he produces... Ch- Is um, essentially a public figure. He uh, is—I mean, sorry to quote Jesus (laughs) here—but of of all people, yeah. But when Jesus says in the in the uh, New Testament, when Jesus says, "This is my flesh," he's feeding them bread. Okay. Now we know biologically that this is actually true. He's feeding them a part of his biology because he's okay. Um, But for me, that that story, that little story, was about how a bakery is connected to his community. And it can be a small community. It can be a big one. When people remember that, then then there's a real bread. Th- th- then real bread is happening.
0: Um, yeah. I definitely, everything that you're saying resonates with me because it is. Meaning, I think that might be the same with all businesses. But certainly this business, you feel like you're nefesh, your goof. Everything is in this business. Also, psychologically, financially, emotionally, everything is tied in. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've totally gone over my time. I kind of
1: figured. But
0: and I would say we, we didn't even scratch the surface. We have a million hilarious David stories to tell. We have all the look back ons. So obviously, I would love to have you back here again. Also, we didn't even drink coffee while we were doing this, and overall, I, mm-hmm. I didn't treat you the way that um, that a guest should be treated. Oh,
1: but I have okay. Do it. <laughs> I, 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 one story. Okay? Go. When I first met you guys, and I still I I, I was baking with David in the island flat so oven, okay. One of my shocks, David. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trash you. Uh, <laughs> one of my shocks was I would go through a whole day, and I think I even told you guys, you guys this, and not a glass of water, not a glass, of... not a we cup just, of we, coffee. We this. Yeah, not anything. And I was, and it took me a while to realize that I was reading. I I read this initially as rudeness, but one of the things that I trained myself was to hold judgment until I understand the cultural uh, context of something. And at some point, I realized that this was completely backwards. David felt so comfortable for me that for him, the fact that I didn't just open the fridge and, 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 and let myself <laughs> eat something was very strange. I mean, he, he couldn't figure it out. And it was a complete cultural shock for me. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this.
0: I just said we've just finished. We've been talking for close to an hour, and like I didn't even put like a glass of water down in front of him. It's true. Yes, in our house, especially there's that feeling of like everybody just walks into our house and into our fridge. Like there's no divide between um yeah. public and, co- and for private. For me, that
1: would have been completely rude. I was not. I've <laughs> never ever seen that in my life.
0: Uh, the best. All right, and overall, thank you very much. You're welcome. We My Appreciate pleasure. it. All right. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap for episode five. If you liked us, find us on iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a little review. That seems to help in the mysterious algorithms in that world. Uh, head over to our website to check out the episode notes from this week's episode it's papamelch.com, and then click on podcasts. It's all there. And, of course, buy your tickets to Avi Gams' concert. We'd love to see you here. Bye.